Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. Congratulations on Absite being done. Uh, today I'm releasing an episode that we did in collaboration with Audible Bleeding, the vascular surgery podcast that covers abdominal vascular trauma. This is an area that's nerve-wracking for all surgeons. So if you're interested in trauma, general surgery, or vascular surgery, I think this really uh, covers a wide range. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to another collaboration between Behind the Knife and Audible Bleeding. Um, today we're going to be covering vascular trauma with our guest, Dr. Todd Rasmussen. Dr. Rasmussen is a colonel in the United States Air Force and a professor of surgery and associate dean of research at the Uniformed Services, University of Health Sciences, and an attending vascular surgeon at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Uh, a couple weeks ago, he helped us out with the peripheral vascular trauma, and today he's going to take us through abdominal vascular trauma. Thank you, Dr. Rasmussen, for joining us again on this collaborative podcast. You bet. Thank you for the opportunity, and uh, congratulations to you and your team on uh, creating such a useful information uh, sharing venue. So I'm, I'm pleased to be with you. We also have uh, Adham Al-Musli on the podcast. He's a chief resident at Cornell and uh, one of the team members of Audible Bleeding. So welcome, Adham. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be here for this one. So for the sake of time, we're going to skip the preoperative workup and description of anatomy and zones of abdominal vascular trauma. So please review this on your own. And just as a side note, we're also going to skip the management of iliac artery injuries. We covered that as part of our peripheral vascular trauma talk. It can fit into abdominal vascular trauma, but for the sake of time, we're going to just jump into uh, true abdominal vascular trauma. So we're going to start out with a little scenario just to um, get our feet wet here. So, Dr. Rasmussen, a, you have a patient with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. General surgery has already prepped them from the neck to the knees and performed a laparotomy from the xiphoid to the pubis. They pack the abdomen and temporarily have control on what they said was pulsatile bleeding from zone one. Can you take us through how to get supercelliac control in, in a case like this in and in a trauma? Sure. So I think, you know, I think for cases like this, just a couple of starter points, you know, no case like this should uh, proceed without, you know, close communication with the, the entirety of the resuscitation team. So I think if I was coming into a case like this or uh, participating in a case like this with, you know, with our team, I would start by making sure that I was in, on good terms with my anesthesia colleagues, that they knew what we were facing in this in this situation, that they were pursuing all the key tenets of damage control resuscitation and, and all that that means, meaning, you know, leading with a blood product or whole blood resuscitation, keeping the patient warm and, and all of those tenets. So I, I would start with that from a technical standpoint. In these types of cases, I will almost always, you can't sew what you can't see. And I'll, I'll often really immediately assess my exposure, I mean, meaning the laparotomy. So you mentioned that laparotomy 
in this case was from the xiphoid to the pubis and 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 that's a great start but but for the approach that you have referenced and is likely to be needed in this case I'll often reset and actually come up uh, higher go between the xiphoid and the costal margin and almost begin you know two to three centimeters of a, of, a, of a sternotomy it's not a sternotomy but it is at least coming along the side of the xiphoid and really release thoracic uh, the, the, the inferior costal margins of the thoracic under the diaphragm so that you can really pull the diaphragm i mean sorry the, the costal margins laterally and up so that you want to suspend your costal margins so that you're almost suspending the patient's rib cage up and away from the aorta and the abdominal contents. So I think making a, a good assessment of your exposure initially is really important. Hopefully, you know, in in, in the case that, that I am prepping and, and, and operating on these cases, I'll try as best I can to use a retractor such as the Omni that will allow for retractors to really be placed up underneath the uh, costal margin. So again, you can spread spread those costal margins and, and try to lift the thoracic, almost lift the, the costal margins away from the abdominal contents. If, if you don't have an omni, you can still make sure that you're trying to uh, suspend that craniopost aspect of your, of your exposure. Once that's done, the other part of communicating with anesthesia is to see if they have a nasogastric tube down. Supraceliac Control of the in this case is is almost always facilitated by having a nasogastric tube in the esophagus to allow one to palpate the esophagus in this area and and then be able to get around the esophagus uh, circumferentially and sometimes place some sort of umbilical tape or sometimes a Penrose drain to allow for left left sided retraction of the esophagus away from the, the cruse that's surrounding the aorta. The other maneuver here is is really mobilizing the left lateral segment of the liver so that that can either be brought cephalad or tucked, you know, once it's mobilized, can be tucked in inferiorly and brought to the right side or the whole portion of the liver so that you've got the left lateral segment out of the way. And, and now at this point, you know, one is left with the cruise that's overlying the aorta. The other maneuver here sometimes, depending upon uh, the situation, is, is putting the patient a little bit of reverse Trendelenburg to let the stomach and, and, and pull that stomach inferiorly so that you create as big a window as you can uh, with the esophagus retracted to the patient's left, the stomach kind of pulled down. Sometimes you can have a resident or a, an assistant put their hand on the stomach and retract it towards the pelvis, if you will. Sometimes a little bit of reverse T-Berg helps with that. And you can kind of hopefully picture this. So now you've got the rib separated, you've really got the costal margin suspended, and now you've got a window in which you can work. And, and at this point, now it's maneuvers dividing the skeletal muscle, which is the cruise overlying the aorta. This can often be um, facilitated with a large right angle, you know, in a bovie extender. And, you know, in this case, you know, you can almost always see that you're dividing skeletal muscle over the aorta. If there's a pulse, uh, hopefully there's even a weak pulse, you know, one can feel the aorta and just divide the cruise over the aorta and, uh, and try to use some blunt dissection on either side to allow your palpation of the spine on either side. You know, in these cases, I typically don't try to spend time getting circumferential control of the aorta. It's it's not like an elective aneurysm repair where we'll 
sometimes get around the entire aorta. In these cases, if you can get on either side of the aorta down to the spine, you know, that that is 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 what is needed and is most efficient in these emergent sort of cases. So I'll you know, stop there if you have other questions. I mean it's a it's a an exposure which it requires you know a comprehensive set of of, uh, of things to think about. But I'll I'll stop there for now. Do you have any questions or other comments? So my question is sometimes you're faced with a situation of entering a patient's abdomen, obviously there's a large rush of blood and you think it may be coming somewhere in the upper aorta. Do you think it's worth taking the time to get supraceliac control in the in the way that you described before doing a medial visceral rotation and exposing the aorta that way? Or are there any scenarios in which you should do a medial visceral rotation first before you do that? If so, can you take us through can you take us through medial visceral rotation, when to take when to, when to leave the kidney down, when to take it up, sort of the pitfalls and advantages of doing each of those approaches? Yeah, I think uh, so that's a great question. I think it, it is worth getting supraceliac control if in the scenario that you described where where you you know the, the description is a zone one uh, hematoma that's bleeding and uh, you know you you've got some uh, a little bit of time you know somebody may be holding pressure or but I do think it's worth getting supraceliac control if you think it's from the zone one. Now, if it's, you know, the initial description was zone one, and then you get in there and you look, and it actually looks to be from the spleen or, or from a different area, then, then you can readjust. But if it's truly a, a zone one hematoma that's got active bleeding, then I, to answer your question, I do think it's worth uh, taking the time to get supraceliac control. The, the medial visceral rotation, of, of course, is is designed to 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 give a you know optimal exposure to the left medial visceral rotation is is designed to give optimal exposure of of the paravisceral segment of the aorta. So that is you know the the, the supraceliac segment all the way down to you know to the aortic bifurcation and and and, and really the left uh, primarily the left iliac common iliac artery. Initially, although it can be taken across the aortic bifurcation to see the right iliac as well, in this case that that is performed through dividing the white line of Tolt along the sigmoid sigmoid colon and the left colon, and you know establishing this plane in the retroperitoneum, and and a good portion of this is is steady, you know, blunt dissection. It's facilitated with bovi electrocautery. But it, it is also, you know, there's a plane in that in this area that is developed with blunt dissection as well. And in, in the setting of trauma, almost always this dissection plane is taken from the sigmoid, the left colon, up to divide the, the attachments and bring the spleen and, and the left kidney all the way to the, to the midline and then to the patient's right, ultimately. And I think in, in the setting of trauma, the kidney is almost always uh, brought up into this and, and, and just bring the kidney up. I think it's generally easier. It's a little bit faster because you don't have to take the time to, to find that plane you know, above the left kidney and to leave it down. So in the setting of trauma, I would almost always bring that left kidney up. I have a question. Speaking of exposure, specifically about eviscerating the bowel, I find myself you know, as, the, as the senior resident sometimes appreciating actually how difficult and nuanced it is to do this. 
the way that I've learned to do it is kind of taking all the bowel and finding a lap pad large enough that's moist and placing some sort of clamp or something around it and then having someone hold it outside the abdomen. But I've always found that it sort of ends up being clunky or the bowel falls out of the lap pad. Do you have any tips on how to eviscerate and control the small bowel in a situation like this? It's, it's a great question. And it is, it's, it is very difficult <laughs> to describe this using, in a discussion. It's one of those things where you just got to feel it. But in my experience, this is the, and I hope those who are listening and, and you can kind of picture yourself in this situation, this is really the, 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 the main purview and job of the surgeon that's on the patient's right. So you can picture, you know, you're on the patient's yeah. right and, and it takes a, it takes a, it takes a strong and, and I think big, I don't necessarily mean physical, but it takes a strong and a big right hand to get that bowel that, you know, up and, and over and to the patient's right side, you're, you know, you're pulling it from the left to the right. And, and I, you know, I'm sitting here describing it and my hand is, I'm trying to extend my hand as wide as I can, you know, and, and it's, it's not a subtle move. It's not, it, it shouldn't be a rugged move, but it needs to be very, it, it can't be done with a gentle, it, it's a gentle uh, type of thing. You've got to be strong with it. And I don't use lap pads in this situation. I'll get operative towels. So I'll okay. ask them to get a, a moistened blue towel or a wet blue towel and, you know, basically what you do is with, you know, with your left hand is you take that blue towel and you put it underneath your right hand, which has the viscera in it. And, you know, you sort of try to get it down at the very base so that you, you really, that blue towel and your, and your right fingers are coming across the aorta, you know, because you're taking it from the, you know, from the patient's left to the patient's to the midline and then try to get it over to the right and, and then put this big blue towel, this wide blue towel, you know, underneath your fingers and then, you know, lay it out. And and then hopefully, I mean, this is where I, I actually like in my situation or in my preferences to use the Omni, mm -hmm. but you're going to need a big, a wide, you know, retractor that's going to take the place of your right hand. Okay. It's going to now come in you know, on the top of that blue towel. And, and and hold all of that, and maybe a couple that hold that viscera, you know, to the patient to the right of the patient's midline. That's one of those maneuvers that I feel like is very much easier said than done. And I've been, I've been humbled by it. <laughs> it's very difficult to describe. Great. So when we talk about the left medial viscera rotation for our kind of med students out there, we're, we're thinking that th there's likely an aortic injury or a, uh, a branch close off the aorta. Sometimes you'll need to do a right medial visceral rotation, though, and that's generally when you're kind of worried about either generally an IVC injury. So, Dr. Rasmussen, can you just take us through a few of the nuances of a, a right medial visceral rotation? Right. So this is, you know, this from obviously from the other side, and this involves dividing the the white line of tolt starting often at the cecum and the and, and coming along the the right colon, and uh, bringing the you know the cecum cephalad and 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 the entire right colon you know to the patient's left now and then cephalad. It's it's I'm surprised most of the time in these cases it's actually not so much a uh, rotation to the midline and then the left as it is bringing everything up cephalad to almost to the patient's left costal margin for example and you really uh, are almost bringing the cecum and the and the right colon you know to the up onto the patient's left chest in a way and 
And this is a, a plane that also, similar to the medial visceral rotation on the left side, this is a plane that is largely developed with blunt dissection. It's a combination. Once the, the, the peritoneum, retroperitoneum has been opened with, with some bovie electric cautery, then, then the plane should develop. And in this case, you'll see almost immediately the, the left iliac uh, vein and then the vena cava. And, and you continue to bring the, the uh, left colon up until you see the, the left renal vein, or I'm sorry, the right renal vein. And and the kidney and 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 it, you know at its superior extent, this will of course expose the head of the pancreas, the duodenum, and the head of the pancreas. And similarly, you know this the viscera in this situation, I get a, a wet blue towel or operating towel. I guess it can be a white towel, but I don't really like to use a lap sponge because it's too small and it doesn't quite have enough substance. And you will one will you know place that that blue operative towel down along your fingers that are bringing this this all of the viscera up so that you really get it all partitioned away with with a substantive operative towel and that that has to be then you know controlled and with a large retractor so that your hands are free to to actually operate Perfect. One thing I just want to remind some of our residents and med students out there is I, I would really go onto YouTube after this and just look up left and right medial visceral rotation. That'll really help solidify these points. It's one thing hearing it, but I think if you watch uh, some videos on it, I think it'll really help bring it all together. Yeah, I think I was, I was going to say the same or to obviously have an atlas, but or, you know, something because it's it is you got to kind of combine, I think, the words that we're talking about here with with some sort of visual aid. The other thing that I would recommend and, and make a point is for those who have the opportunity to assist with spine exposures. So in these maneuvers that we often perform as assisting our orthopedic or neurosurgical colleagues to expose, do anterior exposure to the spine, many of these maneuvers we're talking about are, are performed in, in the spine exposure, which, which sometimes can be overlooked by trainees and, and, and uh, even Sometimes it's, well, that's not a very good operation. You don't really get to sew and, and uh, it's not really a vascular operation. Boy, I'll tell you, spine exposures are a great way to begin to observe or learn the tenets of, of, of rotating the viscera either to the right or to the left and, and exposing the retroperitoneum. I think uh, spine exposures and also procurements have been extremely helpful for liver and kidney. This right-sided rotation is usually the first step of any procurement, and then you're kind of seeing the entire retroperitoneum. So it's also a very good opportunity to learn some anatomy. Great point. We haven't discussed the infrarenal aorta yet. I think probably a, a slightly more straightforward approach, but can you discuss your technique for infrarenal aortic exposure and then talk about um, kind of coming across the renal vein, when you can ligate it, how to get it out of the way, things like that? Right. So the the most you know the most common and uh, maybe most straightforward exposure is what we refer to as a you know transperitoneal inframesocolic exposure of of the of the infrarenal aorta. And, you know this here again, people who are listening and looking either at uh, videos or, or or in an atlas kind of recommend or recognize that the inframesocolic means that the transverse colon is reflected. Cephalad, and that's one of the first moves, is to really hold up the transverse colon in the patient's abdomen and, and drape it up 
you know, cephalad almost on the patient's costal margin. And often, you know, I'll set initially set a retractor uh, that also goes into a big to me is 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 partitioned with a operative towel, a moistened or wet operative towel to to get the transverse colon and retracted cephalad. And then the next move is to divide the, the ligament of trites. And this, to me, is always also a maneuver that's led by the surgeon on the patient's right, whether that's the primary surgeon and the, the attending or a resident, however you're configured, this, this maneuver, dividing the ligament of trites and, and, and getting the you know, fourth portion of the duodenum, which is to the left of the midline, you know, dividing that ligament of trites, that peritoneum, and, and, and bringing that over to the patient's right is, is the next move. And, and that begins this process of, you know, getting really the, the bowel. Now, in, in this case, the, the left colon is left, remains to the mm-hmm. patient's left, but you're bringing all, all bowel to the patient's right. This, this is not a, a medial viscera rotation of, of the entirety of the viscera. This is only uh, bringing the the duodenum, the fourth portion of the duodenum, and all of the small bowel, uh, partitioning it to the patient's right, and and this also, then uh, again, if one can visualize this being done by the pa- the surgeon to the patient's right, on the right side of the patient, bringing that small bowel all the way across. This also takes a wide and broad and strong hand. This can't be done with. I, I don't know how else to say it. It's just um, takes a, a broad and strong sort of maneuver with with the hand to bring this across and then and then partition get another wet blue towel i keep saying blue i guess it could be white but operative towel and yeah put that towel over your fingers and you know as you bring the small bowel over that's the infrarenal aorta you know this by positioning then retractors one will you know at the most uh, cephalad extent of that exposure begin to see the left renal vein at the at the root of the of the colon mesentery, and uh, you know at the at the caudal most portion of this, you'll see the aortic bifurcation, and uh, you know that's that's sort of the extent of this. The the the, the left renal vein um, can be ligated if if it if it facilitates aortic control. Obviously, if one is going to ligate the left renal vein, it's it's optimal to leave the the branches of the left renal vein, so the gonadal, the, the the lumbar vein, which also often will drain the left kidney, and then the mm-hmm. the the gonadal. So if those are left intact, uh, dividing that left renal vein can usually uh, be accomplished without causing uh, significant detriment to the left kidney. I will say that dividing the left renal vein is easier said than done. I mean, it's it is you know it's a uh, thin walled structure which of course can bleed significantly itself so you know these are all sort of decisions that have to be made depending upon what what injury you're dealing with and and, and the extent of your exposure i think w- one question i forgot to ask you earlier was i think inferenally the aorta is a little bit easier to get around completely and put you know an umbilical tape or a vessel loop around but like you mentioned earlier in the supraceliac area, that's a lot harder to do. And sometimes the goal is not to always do that. But you have tips on how to do that? Because, again, I've been humbled by that um, in a procurement one time when the attending allowed me to try and get around it. And I tried bluntly with my fingers to get around the posterior aorta and had a lot of trouble. So do you have any tips about that? Well, I think this is, I mean, this is just takes, you know, experience and and and. <laughs> 
and, and and time. I mean, I in, in my own mind as I see this, I, I you know this is a combination of a sort of a, a little bit of medicine bomb scissors, a little bit of kind of pushing, you know, because what you're trying to do is to 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 free the aorta from from the connective tissue around it to get back to the spine, you know. Sometimes, actually, almost always, I'll use a metallic pediatric Yankauer. That is sort of uh, one of my the, the suction or, or dissection tools of choice is this Yankauer, which is small in profile. It's got a blunt tip. It will, you know, it, it is a suction device, and so it, that's useful. And, you know, kind of this combination of pushing a little bit of Mets here and there, Mets and bomb scissors. And, and a little bit of, of feeling with your finger till you can get that connective tissue around the aorta freed. And then, you know, you can begin, one can begin to, to you know, use a right angle, a big right angle, and, and try to get underneath it. Uh, obviously, what you're looking for here in part is, is, uh, is lumbar. You know, you're looking for the lumbar vessels, which, you know, those are the things you need to leave behind. Or at least by, as we tell our residents, find the outside before you find the inside. If you can find them the outside before you find the inside of a lumbar, then you can clip it. You know, another, I think, very useful tool in this situation is, is having large WEC clips, you know, because you're not, it's very difficult to pass, you know, a silk to ligate a lumbar. And in these situations, a lot of times, you know, you need those large WEC, medium to large WEC clips to help, you know, get on either side of a, of a lumbar artery or vein. One quick point back to the renal vein, I kind of picked this up uh, just this past week, is uh, you can really get a lot of mobilization on the renal vein just by ligating some of the smaller branches out distally on it, not even the gonadal, but sometimes the adrenal vein and a few of those veins. And you can really get, you know, five centimeters of mobilization of that renal vein, which should give you enough distance to clamp. But now we're going to go into each vessel off the aorta. I know this isn't exactly what you're going to see in a trauma. You don't have isolated celiac artery injury or isolated SMA injury. But just for the sake of learning, we're going to talk through each vessel and talk about the options of exposing it and then repairing it. So starting proximally, uh, Dr. Rasmussen, can you discuss what the best ways to see the celiac artery are and any options for repairing it? Yeah. So the... um you know, the celiac artery, I guess the origin of the celiac artery can be seen either through the lesser sac. This is, again, through, you know, an ant- sort of a, I guess, an anterior approach through the lesser sac. And this is, would likely be very similar to the exposure we talked about with a supraceliac aortic exposure, where the um, is retracted, you know, caudally down towards the pelvis. And, you know, that opening the lesser sac and pulling the, the, the stomach down and, and sort of getting the pancreas to come down, that will expose then the, the origin of the uh, first centimeter or two of the celiac artery. If the proximal segment of the celiac um, artery is injured and bleeding, then, then the repair options, you know, I, I think lend to the category of any vascular, you know, major vascular if it can be prepared, repaired primarily, then you know using a 4-0 or uh, 5-0 proline suture. If it does a grazing wound and, and repairing it primarily can be done, then then that's that's one option. If it's a large you know celiac artery injury that that cannot be repaired primarily and there's destruction of the wall, oftentimes you're an individual's in a da- really a damage control situation there. 
And repair is not so much your first uh, line of thought. You're really in a situation trying to just control bleeding and save the patient's life. And, and so in those cases, you know, controlling the celiac artery and even consider, you know, ligating it may be necessary, you know, as a damage control maneuver, at least initially. The other way to see the origin of the celiac artery is through a left medial visceral rotation. So the, the, the maneuver we described before will show the entire, will expose the, the paravisceral segment of the aorta to include the, the first centimeter or two of the celiac artery. So any keys to identifying the common hepatic artery and again, thoughts on ligation strategies and repair strategies? Right. So I think the, you know, I think, that, I mean, the common hepatic, you'll need to, that will not be able to be visualized through the left medial visceral rotation. The, the, the common hepatic and, and getting out into the segments there of, of the, of the, and, and the major branches of the celiac, one will need then in that case to be coming from a, you know, a transperitoneal, you know, anterior approach to the lesser sac. And, you know, identifying the common hepatic, you know, is, is um, you know, requires sort of a recognition of where the celiac artery is. You're in the lesser sac. The stomach really has to be pulled uh, inferiorly. This is, again, if you find yourself operating in this space, you know, the costal margins, as I said to begin, really have to be flared and almost suspended up so that you've really opened this. Sometimes reverse Trendelenburg is useful getting a, a hand, a resident or a med student's hand to pull the stomach down and, and open up that, that, that space, it, you know, that, that will then should expose then the, you know, the, the, the second and third segments of the celiac and its major branches to include the common hepatic artery. Great. And so as far as ligating the common hepatic artery, how does the GDA play into this? By that, I mean the gastroduodenal artery. Well, I mean, you know, the the the, the GDA is is, is 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 I guess is most commonly the case, as you know, and, and listeners know, is is really one of the first or the first branch of of the common hepatic artery, and 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 really defines the junction between the common hepatic and proper hepatic arteries. And I think, I mean, ideally, the common hepatic should should not ideally you don't want to ligate any of these arteries right so i think that we start with that premise to say geez if we can um, get a repair done that's going to be our that's going to be option a whether that's the common hepatic proper hepatic or gda just like any artery in the body um, ligating it may be required as a as a damage control maneuver just to control hemorrhage let the patient recover a little bit talk to anesthesia and sort of see how things are going, make an assessment of, of, of the region distal to where you've ligated. So, so this is just a basic tenet of, of ligating any artery in a damage control situation. We recognize no matter which artery we're ligating, the consequences of that ligation are, we need to assess those consequences and, and, then, and then address them if we're able, if the patient's you know, able to, to move to the next step. So Obviously, ligating the common hepatic distal to the GDA is likely to render, you know, a significant portion of, 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 the, of the duodenum, the pancreas, and, and then the liver ischemic. And so, you know, if the ligation can occur proximal, if the injury is proximal to the GDA, 
then you know that would and and, G, and perfusion could be maintained into the GDA, then that's that's preferable. But if I was in one of these situations or when I am, and, and we find ourselves having to ligate it or we ligated it, we didn't quite know because we didn't, but we had to, you know, it was bleeding and, and there was a clip and we had to just a damage control maneuver. And now all the GDA or the common paddock or the proper paddock's ligated. Now what I usually do is we'll talk to anesthesia, we'll get the patient as resuscitated as we can, we'll get out the Doppler, we'll make an assessment because, you know, depending upon patients can tolerate, depending upon their resuscitation status, collateral, where your ligation is, you know, they may be able to tolerate having any one of those vessels ligated. If on the other hand, you've got your Doppler and you get the patient resuscitated as possible and there's clear ischemia, then you're going to be faced with the decision as to whether or not we need uh, to reconstruct the, this ligated vessel, shunt it, or you know maybe a situation where you have to deal with the metabolic consequences and leave the leave it ligated. There's, there's not one answer, you know. That it, I think there's a there's not one answer that applies to all situations. It's uh, I think it's uh, learning and adhering to the the principles of damage control resuscitation and damage control surgery. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, and now let's dive into the SMA. And this is, you know, very close in proximity to the uh, celiac artery. So many of the options to visualize it will be the same, but there's some unique differences uh, with its relationship with the pancreas. So briefly, Dr. Rasmussen, what are our options to see the SMA? And and, and do we kind of think of the SMA kind of in, in portions a little differently than some other vessels? Definitely. So the, the SMA, you know, the, the, the best way really to see the, the first centimeter to the SMA superior mesenteric artery is, is through the left medial visceral rotation, which will which will will show the entire paravisceral segment of the aorta, including the first centimeter to of the superior mesenteric artery. If if more exposure needs to be, you know, if if if, if one is uh, trying to expose the more distal segments of the SFA, then one will probably have to go back to the anterior approach, not the left medial visceral rotation and go through the approach. And in this case, then the, the superior mesenteric artery is, of course, closely related to the head of the pancreas. And, 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 and so in this situation, the, the head of the pancreas needs to be you know, divided or you know, the, the SMA is closely adherent to the head of the pancreas in this case. Distal, uh, the segment of the superior mesenteric artery distal to the pancreas is often now best seen in an infra- mesocolic uh, approach. And this, this is as the superior mesenteric artery exits the, its sort of second segment and its relation with the pancreas and comes out into the, the root of the mesentery and into, the, into the, uh, the small bowel. This is where, for example, one would lift the transverse colon cephalad, as we described before, and 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 then retract the small bowel to the patient's right and see the the, the root of the SMA below and and inferior to the to the transverse colon. So yes, there there are these distinct segments of the superior mesenteric artery. Each of those segments has a little bit of a different anatomic approach, and and then and each of those segments has you know a, I think considerations. Uh, that are important that relate to surrounding structures, you know, whether that's the, obviously the pancreas, the root of the transverse colon and such. 
thank you for taking us through those uh, complicated anatomy of the SMA as it kind of traverses the abdomen. And, and all these vessels, obviously, we, you know, primary repair is kind of our, our, our first option if possible. And then many times you may need an inner position graft. Just, you know, I know this is a, a question that is very case dependent, but is there a portion of the SMA that you can ligate and or is uh, is the SMA just a, a no ligation zone throughout? Well, that's a, a great question. And I think similar to other other large axial vessels or arteries, you know, um, ligating the more distal segments is just going to be better tolerated than ligating the, you know, the proximal uh, proximal segment. So, you know, I would not say it's a no ligation zone in its throughout its entirety. But I do think, you know, we, that if possible, efforts should be maintained or efforts should be undertaken to maintain flow through the SMA through, you know, through, through its entirety. And, you know, repairing the SMA just, it depends upon the injury. If it is a small grazing wound, then, then, you know, perhaps a primary repair can be undertaken with a 4-0 or a 5-0 proline suture. If it's a more substantial wound and, and one can get it controlled and, and isolate it, you know, then, then repair can be undertaken with a patch angioplasty or even an interposition graft. That's pretty rare in trauma uh, because those wounds are just so mortal. Uh, it's very difficult, you know, patients who have those sorts of axial injuries at the proximal portions of these mesenteric vessels typically don't survive. And, and so, you know, right. it's, it's very difficult. I, I can't think of a time when I've necessarily been repairing for trauma, the proximal segment or two of, of the SMA. It's a little bit different for an elective tumor resection, uh, atherosclerotic occlusive disease and such. But for trauma, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty uncommon to be doing extensive repair of, of these SMA segments. I don't, I don't know what your experience is or, or thoughts are on that. Uh, I certainly have had zero experience <laughs> repairing yeah. SMA injuries, but I know that, like you said, interposition grafting is probably more theoretical than realistic in a situation like this, but can you talk about the technique for it? Maybe it may be useful for other types of situations, but what, what, what material you're using, where you're, where you're bringing the graph from and how you tunnel it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think uh, you guys are exactly right. And, and, and Adam and I have both experienced this is yeah, many times we're not seeing traumas with these injuries, but many times we're getting called by the surgical oncologist with a kind of cancer injury to these vessels. And so I think when we're discussing SMA, we can kind of keep it in the perspective of how, how do we replace it if we need to in, in the situation where uh, they need to do some larger section. So with that in mind, uh, Dr. Rasmussen, can can you tell us how you would bypass it? Yeah, so I think that the I think that in, in these cases, you know, and as I, I said, in, in a rare situation in the setting of trauma, if you've if you've or able to establish proximal and distal control and, and side branch control of this segment, and then you know your options for reconstructing it with an interposition graft, you know, would would include using a prosthetic like PTFE or Dacron or an autologous tissue like vein. And here, it, it just it depends. It depends on how prepared uh, you, know, you are with the, with the patient. For example, as a patient prepped, where one could harvest either the very proximal segment of greater saphenous vein or 
or a segment of deep femoral vein, which which may actually you know have a better size match to the proximal portions of the SMA. And and if that's the case, you know if there's enteric contamination either from a tumor resection or from an injury, then it is preferable, of course, to to use autologous conduits such as deep vein, deep femoral vein, a small segment of deep femoral vein, or if the if the saphenous at its proximal extent is is large enough, you can one can use that. If that's not possible, for example, the leg isn't prepped or or the expertise that is not available to to harvest the the deep vein, then I think using a small segment of revampant soaked Dacron graft would be probably what I would use. And you know, you, you get some revampant from the pharmacy. You, you get a probably a six or eight millimeter diameter uh, segment of Dacron, and and that's your interposition graft. Um, as far as tunneling it that and, and, and how to route it, that sort of depends upon the injury. Obviously, the, 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 the proximal most segments of the SMA are you know, right underneath the pancreas. If, if this involves, for example, a, a Whipple procedure where the head of the pancreas has got to come out and, and, and with that a proximal portion of the SMA, then, you know, then, then that's probably going to require a six or eight millimeter diameter interposition graft, you know, to replace that. And and if it's more distal in the SMA, and now it's, you know, in the inframesocolic, the transverse colon is up and you're in the in the injury or the the segment is is, for example, below the, the, the transverse colon, then that's going to be, you know, three or four millimeters. And it may be there that vein, you know, saphenous vein would, would work. Or in some of those cases, a patch angioplasty using vein is actually easier and better than, than trying to do an interposition graph um, is, is to sort of debride the, the injury and then and then do a patch angioplasty using a segment of a saphenous vein. Right. One follow-up question. In these situations with SMA injuries, say you repair it and the bowel doesn't look infarcted or threatened at the time, do you think it's mandatory to leave these patients open and do a second look even if everything looks fine on the first time? Or do you think you can kind of take it on a case-by-case basis? Yeah, I think, and I think you're getting at uh, uh, an important point here, which is one we've emphasized throughout our discussion, is that none of these these uh, procedures, these these techniques that we're describing, take place in isolation, uh, right? They 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 have to be in conjunction with anesthesia and an assessment of the patient's physiology and 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 the whole team, including the intensive care unit team, et cetera. So. That's uh, a really good point. My own preference in, in these situations is to leave the is to leave the abdomen open with a temporary abdominal closure of some sort and and plan a, a look. You know, twenty four to thirty six hours later. I I really that I think it. I think we know that the morbidity of of that approach is is very low. And I suspect, you know, I think it uh, probably provides not just reassurance, but probably some real advantages in case the, the, the perfusion actually is not adequate and the patient becomes acidemic and, uh, and the bowel is compromised, you know, subsequent to, to your initial departure from the OR. Great. And just to breeze through the inferior mesenteric artery, would you agree that you can generally ligate this with impunity if it's damaged in a uh, trauma situation? I think I never say ligate with impunity, but I, <laughs> because there's always situations where, you know, I think it has to be thoughtful uh, ligation. And in this case, yes, I think the majority of times the, the inferior mesenteric artery can be ligated. 
I think the thoughtful approach here is to make an assessment as of to the patency of the iliac vessels and specifically the internal iliac vessels. I think if what we're describing, which is ligation of the inferior mesenteric artery, um, uh, one can be more assured that that's going to be tolerated if both internal iliac arteries are patent, for example. If the SMA is patent, the celiac is patent, then then ligating the inferior mesenteric artery is almost always tolerated. If for some, if it's an aged person Absolutely. who's got occluded internal iliacs or a, they've got atherosclerosis disease and, and their mesenterics are not good, then I think you have to be a little bit worried about ligating the IMA in some cases. Right. And just for residents that'll be rounding, I think we generally discuss when talking about the IMA and you know open aorta situations, if it's occluded or it's pulsatile, then we feel comfortable ligating it. It's when it has that kind of uh, slight dribble back that we may uh, consider re-implanting it just to kind of prepare you for your rounds. Dr. Rasmussen, we're going to jump into the last vessel of branches of the aorta, but not an easy one to discuss either. We're going to discuss the renal arteries. And, you know, I, I know it differs kind of whether it's proximal or distal very much as far as your exposure. But how, how do you think of the renal arteries in, in, in your management of them in uh, traumatic situations? Yeah, I think that it's, I think that what I'm thinking about in, in that question is, is similar other vessels that, that and, and hopefully it's helpful as a broad principle and, and approach. You know, we started this discussion talking about exposure and making sure communicating with anesthesia and, you know, having the right suction devices and retracting devices and headlights in these broad, these broad concepts to make sure that you, you've thought about going into these cases. You know, I think when it comes to the renal arteries, like like all these vessels, it, it's useful to think, well, I'm either in a in a fairly elective situation, you know, meaning I've got things under control. For the most part, patient's physiology is uh, solid. You know, there's there's whatever bleeding there is, is, is controlled, and I, I've got a reasonable exposure. In contrast to I am in a uncontrolled situation, and there's the patient's in a, in a really bad situation. You know, the bleeding's not controlled. I don't know where the bleeding's coming from, et cetera. And, and I think it, because it helps one to have a mindset about whether I'm pursuing damage control surgery. You know, am I going to have to, how, how much am I going to work to maintain uh, patency of this vessel? Or am I going to be more tolerant of ligating it and just as a damage control maneuver and having to deal with the consequences, but recognizing I need to do it to save the patient's life? So the renal arteries are like that, I think, because it is similar to the SMA. It is pretty unlikely in the setting of trauma to be reconstructing a renal artery. I think that's it's pretty rare. In trauma, the, the, the kidney, uh, the renal artery is either not injured, you know, not injured, and, and you know, there's, there's hematoma, but it's from the, the parenchyma of the kidney or surrounding vessels, or the renal artery is, is, is injured and thrombosed, you know, and, 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 and if certainly if it's injured and thrombosed by the time you know, an individual gets to it, it's probably too late. The ischemic time, warm ischemic time to the kidney has been too great, and there's not going to be value of, of, of trying to reconstruct it in the setting of trauma. And so if it happens to be an in-between, you know, say, well, let's say that uh, actually it is one of these cases where, you know, explore the, the, the zone two hematoma and uh, it is coming from a main renal artery, then, you know, and there's flow in it, but it's bleeding. Um, then I think the principles that we have described 
such as either primary repair, 450, potentially probably in this case, maybe a 60 monofilament suture, such as proline, would be useful. Um, if that appears to compromise the lumen, then either a patchy angioplasty of that artery or, you know, a bypass. But again, that is extremely rare in the setting of trauma. You know, if it's, if it's going to require more than, than a primary repair, you know, it's, I think in my experience, equally likely that, you know, you're going to be ligating that vessel for damage control, but, but it's pretty rare to be doing a complex renal artery repair in the setting of, of trauma. Similar to the, you know, proximal SMA injuries, for example, they're just pretty rare. Um, can you talk to us about what your approach is to dealing with renal hematomas, whether they're penetrating or blunt? I know the old adage of every penetrating renal hematoma should be explored and blunt ones should not be explored unless they're expanding. may not be true, but can you kind of walk us through how you approach this? Right. So, you know, zone two, this would be, uh, you know, zone one or the central abdominal hematomas. And, you know, the rules that you're alluding to are that, you know, almost all or all zone one hematomas should be explored. Zone two hematomas, which are the kidneys in the lateral uh, gutters, basically, you know, the general rule is that if it's a expanding hematoma, regardless if the mechanism is blunt or penetrating, then those hematomas should be explored in zone two. The general rule goes, as uh, most of your listeners know, if it's a blunt injury and the zone two hematoma is not expanding, then that does not need to be explored. In contrast, if it's a zone two hematoma from a penetrating mechanism, then most of the time those then need to be explored, even if the hematoma is, is stable. Those are the general rules that we use to guide our approach to zone two retroperitoneal uh, hematomas. So I, I use those. I think that's, those are pretty good. You know, I think, I think there are uh, times when a, a, a blunt, you know, one finds themselves in, 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 in the belly because there was a hemoperitoneum from a, a, another injury and there is a, a blunt mechanism and there's a zone two hematoma. I have explored those in the past. And uh, I think that if, I don't think those guidelines are, are meant to be, you know, uh, dictums that can never be adjusted for an individual case. So one question, I know a lot of times, uh, many of these cases, we don't already have the laparotomy performed. You know, they're in the trauma bay, they get a CT scan, and they, they call and say there's an intimal flap, there's a fistula, maybe a pseudoaneurysm uh, in the renal artery. Any kind of general principles for, for some of these sort of incidental findings? So what you described there is is the most obviously is, I guess the most common scenario in which which it's a, a CT finding you know right in or just after the resuscitation room of a main renal artery injury branch renal artery injury or maybe you know a brinkable injury to the kidney and and in those cases I think if the, let's say it's the intimal flap that you describe if the intimal flap is either not limiting. Uh, and and there's perfusion in the kidney on that CT scan, for example, and it does not appear to be flow limiting, then that can be observed. Some of those, like other blunt uh, in arterial injuries, some of those will heal. If it is amenable to an endovascular placement of a, a bare metal stent, that can be used in some institutions to tack down or stabilize that dissection. 
And that would be if, if, if you really feel like it is a flow limiting more than 50% stenosis caused by that intimal flap. The more distal branch artery injuries can often also be managed with endovascular techniques such as coil embolization, um, replacement of an endovascular occlusive you know, hemostatic uh, coil or, or other uh, device. And I think coil embolizing or, or, or treating those depends upon, you know, how the patient is doing, how much blood they're requiring, how large the hematoma is, and, and, and then what their hemodynamics are. But I think for those reasons, what we described five or 10 minutes ago, having to fix these main, these renal artery injuries in the OR is pretty uncommon because they've, they've either been diagnosed and managed based off CT with or without endo, endovascular technologies. And oftentimes, the management of a renal artery injury, if you're in the OR, exploring and expanding you know, hematoma in one of the zone twos is, is going to be nephrectomy, you know, because it's, it's that major injury in which there's just not, there's not the indication for repair. I want to thank you very, very much for taking a complex topic that's sort of convoluted and breaking it down from technical steps to algorithms for exposure to how to repair. I think this was overall an excellent episode. Um, what we haven't touched on is endovascular management of trauma, which we'll save for another episode. But thank you so much for, for a great discussion, Dr. Esmussen. Well, I applaud you for tackling. Uh, the topic is unruly, you know, both in the, the anatomy the anatomic exposure, operative exposure, and then the seemingly endless number of scenarios that can be considered for either observation, repair, or damage control ligation. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a complex topic. I would commend you for tackling it, and I hope that our discussion is is useful for, for you and your listeners. Definitely. I think this uh, gives people the, the groundwork to really make some safe decisions. One thing I want to mention to our listeners, if you click on our show notes or you go to audiblebleeding.com, we're going to have links to different YouTube videos that will have breakdowns of many of these exposures. So you can listen to this and then go watch it later to really reinforce it. So thank you, Dr. Rasmussen, again, for an extremely complex episode that you're breaking down onto a podcast. Thank you for listening to Audible Bleeding. This is part two of six of our vascular trauma series with Dr. Rasmussen. Be sure to tune in to hear the rest of the series. Until next time, dominate the day.